70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, my name is Bernd Seiser. Seit 1974 Hello, my name is Bünd Seiser. I've been listening to shortwave radio since 1974 and to KBS World Radio's German service from its day one, May 1st, 1981. I have also been serving as an official monitor since 2003. Congratulations on the 70th anniversary, and I hope to catch the German broadcast on 3955 kHz for many years to come. I will look forward to keeping myself updated with useful information about Korea through the channel. My favorite program is Magazine K. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the two hosts of the show. Once again, happy 70th birthday. This has been Bernd Seiser from Ottenau, Germany. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Tuesday the 14th of November and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won Jang-woo. The delinquency rate for credit card loans among South Koreans has reached the highest level in eight years. This comes on the back of soaring interest rates. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we discuss the idea that North Korea is looking to use its nuclear arsenal as a threat for mutually assured destruction rather than a tool for coercion. And then coming up for Touch Basin's Hole, Korean-American author Frances Cha returns to the show, this time to talk about a children's picture book that she has written with all that and more on today's Code 24. In a concerning sign for the local economy, the delinquency rate for bank-issued credit card loans has reached the highest level in eight years due to high interest rates and a stagnant economy. With the rates imposing a greater burden on cardholders, there are concerns that the number of delinquent borrowers will increase further. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have in the studio with us the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-kyung, In-kyung hello. Hello, Chang-ho. So it seems more people are struggling to pay back loans amid high interest rates and the economic slowdown. The Bank of Korea's latest data on credit card loan delinquency showed this as well. Can you break down the figures for us? Sure. According to the BOK on Tuesday, the delinquency rate of loans from cash advances and bank-issued credit cards came to 2.9% as of the end of August. It jumped 0.9 percentage points over the same month the previous year and was the highest level in eight years since it reached 3.1% in August of 2015. The delinquency rate of credit card loans at commercial banks peaked at 3.4% in November 2014 and has since declined. But after falling to 1.8% in September 2022, 
The rate rose to 2.2 percent in January before surging to nearly 3 percent in the second half of this year. Yes, the central bank noted that the growth in credit card loan delinquency is noticeably higher than household loan delinquency at commercial banks. Can you brief us on the numbers and also explain what this means? Sure. The delinquency rate of household loans was 0.4% as of the end of August, far lower than the 2.9% for credit cards. This is because card-based loans carry a higher interest rate compared to regular bank loans, indicating that such borrowers have already exhausted alternatives or need liquidity urgently. A higher delinquency rate for credit card loans may mean that vulnerable borrowers are struggling to repay other loans, which may be a warning about the soundness of financial institutions. Yes, worrying indications that the nation's economic health is being strained. Right. Uh, in other economic news, the government has been criticised for its recent ban on short selling, with critics saying that the ban could hinder the nation's push to be included in the Morgan Stanley Capital International's uh, Developed Market Index. President Yoon sung uh, made a comment on this today, defending the decision on Tuesday. Can you tell us more? In a cabinet meeting on Tuesday, President Yoon pledged to ban short-selling until measures for fundamental improvements are devised. He said the temporary ban was put in place last week to prevent illegal market disruptions and protect the domestic stock market as well as around 14 million individual investors. Regarding concerns of not being included on the MSCI index, Yoon contended that neglecting illegal short-selling would cause greater damage to investors and jeopardize trust in the market. Okay, let's shift gears now to some sports news because the LG Twins, their fans, had the most exciting night in 29 years on Monday. This whole baseball club won the best of seven Korean series for the first time since 1994. Incredible. Can you tell us more? The Korean series came to a close in Game 5 on Monday as the LG Twins claimed their first pro baseball title in 29 years over the KT Wiz. In what was ultimately the last game on Monday, the Twins got on the board first in the third inning against KT's Goyongpyo when Park Kim-in's two-run double gave the Twins an early 2-0 lead. The Twins never looked back, scoring six runs on the night, while LG's starting pitcher Casey Kelly and the bullpen kept KT's offense relatively quiet, giving up just two runs. Yes, the series actually started ominously for the Twins with a loss in Game 1, but then the team followed that with dramatic back-to-back come-from-behind victories. That's right. Captain Ojihwan was named the Korean Series MVP after finishing the series with three home runs and eight runs batted in, while also becoming the first player to hit homers in three straight games in the same Korean Series. Okay, let's shift now to some diplomatic news. The top diplomats of South Korea, the US and Japan will meet for talks on the margins of this week's Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in San Francisco on Tuesday. Can you tell us more? Foreign Minister Park Jin will meet with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and his Japanese counterpart Yoko Kamikawa. They are expected to focus on a purported arms trade between Pyongyang and Moscow, as well as the North's third attempt to launch a military reconnaissance satellite. Washington is also likely to explain to its two key Indo-Pacific allies the agenda for U.S. President Joe Biden's Wednesday summit with Chinese President Xi Jinping and listen to their views. Do we know what's on the agenda for the Biden-Xi meeting? 
According to Japan's Kyoto News on Tuesday, the two leaders are expected to agree on a partial restoration of military communication. This comes after China cut military communication following a visit to Taiwan last August by the U.S. Speaker of the House at the time, Nancy Pelosi. Washington has pushed for the lines to be reopened in order to prevent accidental military clashes between the two countries. Last week, a senior White House official said that the summit will broadly address U.S.-China relations as well as global issues including trade conflicts and the wars in Israel and Ukraine. The official said that in the summit, President Biden will also convey the U.S. concerns that North Korea could provide weapons to Russia and receive specific military technologies in return. Biden will reportedly call for China to play a role regarding the matter. We'll leave it there for our news briefing today. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. It's been more than four years since the breakdown of the second summit between former U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un in Hanoi. And nuclear talks between the two sides have been at a standstill since. In the meantime, Pyongyang has continued its nuclear weapons build-up and advancement. In September, the reclusive state even amended its constitution to bolster and expand its nuclear force. What does North Korea intend to do with its nuclear capabilities? What are they trying to achieve? In a recent analysis piece on the online news magazine The Diplomat, one expert said that the prominent feature of the North Korean nuclear weapons crisis is not nuclear coercion, but rather mutually assured destruction. To learn more about this argument and his thoughts on the current situation on the Korean Peninsula, we've invited the author on our show today. He is Dr. Denny Roy, a senior fellow at the East-West Centre in Honolulu, Hawaii, and he joins us on the line now. Dr. Roy, hello, and thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Good morning. So nuclear negotiations with North Korea are at a standstill, and they have been essentially since the collapse of that summit in Hanoi. That was February 2019, and that was under the previous administrations of both the US and South Korea. So a significant time has passed now. So what's your assessment of the current situation? Can we begin there? My assessment is total policy stagnation on both sides. U.S. policy remains focused on the single-minded goal of getting North Korea to denuclearize. The U.S. is applying pressure in several ways, including continuing economic sanctions, attempting to intimidate North Korea through the deployment of nuclear-capable ships and aircraft to South Korea, and the promise of economic benefits for North Korea as a reward for denuclearizing. But none of that is working. All we hear from Pyongyang is even deeper commitment to and investment in its nuclear weapons and missile programs. Also, China and Russia are not helping either impose or enforce sanctions, so sanctions are less effective than ever. On the other hand, North Korea's policy toward the U.S. is also a failure. The Kim regime's investment in nuclear weapons is a huge waste of resources. North Korea doesn't need nuclear weapons to deter a U.S. ROK invasion. They don't want to invade. South Koreans are in no hurry to annex North Korea. North Korea's nukes are also not forcing the U.S. to drop sanctions or to recognize the DPRK as a nuclear weapons state. Washington seems prepared to live with this status quo indefinitely with no concessions to Pyongyang. 
Right, so we're at a situation where neither, uh, n- neither side is backing down, uh, essentially. And in the past, I understand that you have previously suggested that failure is the only option when it comes to uh, North Korea denuclearization policy uh, in a piece for the East-West Centre. All the way back in 2017, you said that the regime's commitment to keeping its nuclear weapons... Uh, uh, it's doubtful that uh, Pyongyang would give them up, even under much tougher economic sanctions. I'm assuming that you still stand by that assessment. Yeah, me and a lot of other people thought that then and still think so now. I hate to say anything nice about Vladimir Putin, but he's probably right when he says the North Koreans would prefer to eat grass rather than give up their nuclear weapons. The Kim regime has shown that it highly values nuclear weapons. They have strategic value and domestic political value. Economic hardship is not enough by itself to cause denuclearization. The regime has persuaded the North Korean public to accept the cost. It says to its people, we're poor because of U.S. hostility, and we need nuclear weapons because of U.S. hostility. Also, tougher sanctions don't seem to be possible. The next step would be what we call secondary sanctions, which would mean blacklisting all the banks that do business with North Korea, cutting them off from the international financial system. But the United States is unwilling to take that step because it would seriously antagonize China. Chinese banks would also get blacklisted. Hmm. So it's amid this situation that uh, you mentioned just now the strategic value of nuclear weapons for North Korea. And in your most recent analysis published in The Diplomat, you said that North Korea's nuclear buildup means mutually assured destruction, not coercion. You said that North's nuclear arsenal uh, is not aimed at blackmailing South Korea and other countries. Can you explain a bit more for our listeners what you mean by that and what it is then that North Korea is trying to achieve? Yeah, so first on mutual assured destruction, or MAD, the appropriate acronym. MAD is deterrence through offense rather than defense. It means that I can destroy you, and nothing stops me from doing that except my belief that if I try to do that, you will destroy me also. So North Korea's nuclear buildup means more certainty or more assurance that North Korea has the ability to destroy U.S. and South Korean cities, more certainty because of more missiles and more different kinds of missiles. That's the expansion of the arsenal. And, of course, the U.S. has long had the ability to destroy North Korean cities. Furthermore, neither side has a reliable way of stopping the other side's missiles. So Pyongyang seems to want to make clear that it can hold U.S. cities at risk the same way that the United States can hold North Korean cities at risk, and that it can overwhelm U.S. anti-missile defense systems, which have limited capability to begin with. A little bit on uh, nuclear blackmail. There's a lot of worry that North Korea intends to use this expanded nuclear arsenal for nuclear blackmail. Let me explain what I mean by that. If Pyongyang says, I will nuke you if you attack me, that's deterrence, not blackmail. Blackmail would be a nuclear threat connected to a specific policy demand that would change the status quo in Pyongyang's favor. Mm. For example, if you don't cancel the next U.S. ROK military exercise, we will nuke you. Or if Seoul does not agree to giving Pyongyang political authority over the South, we will nuke you. In my view, North Korea is unlikely to attempt nuclear blackmail for two reasons. First, it's not credible. The U.S. has a much larger nuclear arsenal than North Korea, and we know that Pyongyang knows that. 
Second, it would be extremely risky for Pyongyang. The U.S. or South Korea might react to an attempted blackmail by launching a preemptive nuclear attack. And if Pyongyang responded to that preemptive nuclear attack, the likely result would be the extinction of the DPRK regime. North Korea has a certain comfort zone for risk, and this would be way outside that comfort zone. Right. So uh, you're saying it is then perhaps more of a defensive deterrence then rather than uh, a weapon that is using to uh, coerce other nations? I think it's explainable as a, as a deterrent measure rather than a, an offensive measure. Mm. What about small or tactical nuclear weapons as well? Uh, the risk for the U.S. is, of course, a long-range uh, uh, ballistic missiles, ICBMs, but uh, North Korea is continuing to develop uh, smaller tactical nuclear weapons as well. Does that fit into this strategy of uh, mutually assured destruction? It fits better into the strategy of deterrence. Uh, North Korea's conventional military forces are weaker than those of South Korea. So Pyongyang probably feels vulnerable. Kim probably worries about Seoul thinking that it could defeat North Korea in a conventional war if the nukes canceled each other out, the U.S. arsenal and the North Korean arsenal. So North Korea's tactical nuclear weapons can be explained as an equalizer. They would instantly increase North Korea's battlefield combat power. So I see them as another way the North is trying to deter its adversaries from attacking. So then what's your assessment of the way that Seoul and Washington are currently handling the North Korean threat? Uh, there seems to be little headway in talks, and you mentioned earlier there seems to be little appetite uh, for making headway in talks. But in the meantime, Seoul and Washington are tightening their uh, re relationship, particularly militarily. So the, the U.S. and South Korean approach has two parts. There's a South Korean part and a U.S. part. The South Korean part is the kill chain, which involves defeating nuclear weapons with conventional weapons. So South Korea using conventional weapons to hit a North Korean missile on the ground before it's launched. The wisdom of that policy, to me, is questionable. First, it requires the South Korean government to know ahead of time that North Korea plans to launch a missile and also to know the exact location of the planned launch. That's already very hard, and it's getting harder because North Korea is now deploying submarine-launched ballistic missiles, which would make the launch point both invisible and mobile. And secondly, because North Korea is switching to solid fuel for its rockets rather than liquid fuel, which greatly shortens the prep time, so that the time that a missile would be vulnerable sitting on the launch pad would be much shorter than in the past. Hmm. Second, the kill chain makes crises harder to control because it speeds up the escalation tempo. If North Korea is thinking about firing a missile, it will feel rushed to fire the missile more quickly because it will be in a use-or-lose situation, worried about South Korea trying to, to disable the missile before it gets launched. The U.S. part of the strategy is to threaten massive retaliation against North Korea. So we see U.S. officials saying that, that they're willing to use the, quote, full range of capabilities, unquote, against North Korea, which, which is code for a nuclear strike. Official U.S. policy is that the North Korean regime will not survive any use of a nuclear weapon. I have to emphasize that that, that is extraordinarily clear for diplomatic language. Uh, in, uh, in an alliance between two countries, uh, for example, the, the language is, is typically something like if one of us is, is attacked and will consult about whether we should do something about it. Mm. But here we have a clear threat by the United States uh, 
that, that commits the United States to a very specific action. That's very unusual. This kind of clear threat is useful and necessary in this situation, I think. If Pyongyang believes this threat, it will be deterred. So on balance, U.S. and ROK policy is effective, although perhaps it raises tensions higher than is necessary. Right. And, and what do you make of their, especially the tightening relationship uh, in recent uh, months, uh, especially under the current UN administration. Uh, on Monday, there was another meeting between the South Korean Defense Minister Shin Won-shik and the US Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and the two countries agreed to revise the country's uh, tailored detent- a deterrent strategy, and that's the first time in 10 years that they're doing that. Uh, a local government source explained that while the previous extended deterrent strategy is based upon the U.S. military's sole nuclear operation. The latest version allows for the joint planning and execution of a nuclear operation involving South Korea's conventional capabilities. Uh, What do you make of this agreement and their meeting? I think this is largely a reaction to the the need to assuage public opinion in South Korea that that, uh, South Korea has a little bit of fear that the United States won't actually step up to the plate and and, and uh, activate the nuclear umbrella uh, in a wartime situation. So the United States has been trying to make the South Koreans feel uh, more connected to, to the nuclear policy, to the making of nuclear policy, and, and bringing South Korea and the United States together in the actual joint planning and, and even uh, giving South Korea a role in the operation uh, seems to have had the effect of uh, making the South Korea have more confidence in the U.S. nuclear umbrella. There have also been growing calls in South Korea for South Korea's own nuclear armament as well. What's your position on this issue? Yeah, so the basic problem here is the credibility of the nuclear umbrella that the United States offers to South Korea. Does Pyongyang really believe that the United States would put Los Angeles at risk in order to defend Seoul now that the North Koreans seem to have a capability to perhaps hit Los Angeles? So there's, there's an extreme solution, a medium solution, and a, and a light solution here. The extreme solution would be South Korea gets its own nuclear weapons. But there are a lot of problems with that possibility. South Korea cannot make its own weapons-grade uh, nu- nuclear fuel, bomb fuel. South Korea would need to build expensive reprocessing or enrichment facilities to do that. South Korea doesn't have a suitable place within its territory to conduct test explosions of nuclear weapons. South Korea would lose its supply of fuel given by other countries for its nuclear power plants, which provide 15% of Seoul's electricity. It might lead to Japan getting nuclear weapons. South Koreans wouldn't be happy about that. And in the worst case, it might actually end the U.S. ROK alliance because groups in both countries would begin to ask the question, well, if South Korea has nuclear weapons, why do we need U.S. troops and bases in South Korea? South Korea can defend itself. There's a medium solution here, which would be placing U.S. tactical nuclear weapons in South Korea. That also has some downsides. It would raise tensions with North Korea. It might incentivize North Korea to consider a preemptive strike and it also justifies North Korea having nuclear weapons. It's harder to ask North Korea to, nuclear, uh, to denuclearize if South Korea itself has just uh, acquired nuclear weapons, even if they're controlled by the United States. So finally, we have the easiest solution, which is the U.S. reaffirming its commitment to the nuclear umbrella. 
Hmm. Washington has been trying to do that, and it seems to have largely satisfied South Korean public opinion for now at least. I think it's important to point out here that even if there isn't 100% faith in the U.S. nuclear umbrella, if Pyongyang believes the U.S. would probably retaliate with nuclear weapons, that's enough for deterrence. Okay, so those were, that's perhaps an extreme example for uh, how to deal with North Korea, uh, South Korea's uh, possible nuclear armament. But looking ahead then, how... What options are there left? How do you think the nuclear stalemate will pan out from here? And is there anything that the South Korean uh, administration and the U.S. administration can do to break this deadlock and improve the situation and ease tensions? There are no obvious or easy solutions. For the foreseeable future, offense is ahead of defense. Both sides have an offense, but no defense in the case of North Korea or inadequate defense in the case of the United States. So that means that if there's a peace, it will be a tense peace. It will be based on the deterrence that comes from mutual assured destruction. That isn't anyone's wish, but that's the reality of the situation. A real lasting solution would require a change in the regime that rules North Korea, or at least a radical change in its posture towards South Korea. Well, it's been very interesting, fascinating to get your insights uh, today, Dr. Roy, and we appreciate your time. We'll leave it there for today. We've been speaking to Dr. Denny Roy from the East-West Center in Hawaii. Thank you once again for your time today. You're welcome. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 29.49 points, or 1.23% on Tuesday, to close the day at 2,433.25. The Tekevi Kosdaq also rose, jumping 19.77 points, or 2.55%, to close at 794.19. On the foreign exchange, the local currency fell 3.81 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,328.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending, our daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jungle. Let's get straight into the first story. What do you have for us? The College Scholastic Ability Test, CSAT in short, or Suning in Korean, is only days away. And for that nine-hour exam, students go to designated schools to take the test. This year, there's a special exam room prepared inside the Seoul Nambu Correctional Institution. This special test center was created for students at Mandela Boys School, an educational facility within the prison. And 10 out of 36 boys will take the CSAT. SAT here on Thursday. Wow, this uh, sounds like a fascinating school. Interesting name as well. Can you mm-hmm. tell us more about it? It was opened in March of this year for inmates aged 17 and under. The school is run under the philosophy and words of former South African President Nelson Mandela, who said, The greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. Young inmates attend classes on weekdays from 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m., and they are taught by university students. 
Sounds quite inspirational, actually. I understand mm. that this is the first school of its kind in Korea as That's well. Right. Uh, but I believe there was some controversy that uh, there were some who opposed its establishment. Right. Officials at the Correction Center acknowledged that there may be criticism that it's absurd to provide classes to those who have committed crimes in society and that have been sentenced because the severity of their crimes is by no means light. However, they said that they try to provide guidance on how to go down a different path without going out into society and committing crimes again, and added that the boys should be given second chances to get educated and reformed. In order for the 10 boys to conduct a test in the Correction Center, the Seoul Metropolitan Office of Education set up a test center and provided full support for the application fee. And the city will also dispatch its staff, including test proctors. Yes, many would argue that the role of prisons and correctional institutions are not only to punish, but also to help reform those who can be reformed Mm -hmm. so that they can one day reintegrate into society and contribute to it. Right. Hopefully these students can get back on the right path and we wish them luck for the exams this Thursday as well. Mm -hmm. Let's continue on to our second story of the day. What do you have for us? Earthing or grounding has been gaining popularity in Korea these days for its health benefits. It's basically walking barefoot, allowing people to directly connect their bodies with the earth. However, as the saying, too much of a good thing is never good goes, the increased popularity of earthing is putting a strain on the environment. Local districts have even put up signs asking pedestrians to refrain from walking barefoot on certain paths. Right, so earthing, this is the latest supposed health fad in Korea, walking barefoot on the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll often find people in uh, parks around the country taking part in this activity nowadays. But you're saying that there are potentially environmental impacts. Uh, where is this causing an issue? Waosan Mountain is located inside Porame Park in Seoul, and recently signs indicating that side roads are closed have been posted everywhere. This is to prevent side paths created when barefoot pedestrians walk on areas other than the designated trails. Because of these sideways, the topsoil that supplies nutrients and moisture to plants becomes thin enough to be easily washed away when it rains, which can lead to damage to the ecosystem. According to the park's management team, leader, when a lot of people step on the soil, it loses its bearing capacity. And when it rains, soil erosion occurs more often. Right, I see. So it's contributing to soil erosion in some vulnerable areas. Right. I understand the ecosystems surrounding mudflats are also suffering. Right. Ecosystem in Incheon's Sore Ecology Park are also getting hurt from this trend. Even on a weekday afternoon, it's not hard to find dozens of people walking barefoot behind a banner that asks people to refrain from walking to protect the ecosystem. You see, the problem is that if so many people step on the mudflats, uh, pressure will be applied to the ground, making the environment uninhabitable for living creatures. A recent study shows this. It found that when people stepped on a tidal flat 60 times, In a short period of time, the population of active crabs in that area was reduced by half. So there seems to be a need for mature civic awareness to ensure that barefoot walking for one's health should not come at the cost of endangering the natural ecosystem. 
Right, so there seem to be some unseen consequences. That is a warning to anyone taking part in this activity to check whether certain areas are okay to walk on or take heed of any related signs, mm-hmm. and perhaps only walk on designated routes. That might be the the safest uh, option here as yeah, well. Yeah, for sure. Let's uh, move on to our final story of the day. What do you have for us? Our listeners found out earlier that history has been made. Twenty nine years of waiting ended Monday night as the LG Twins captured its first Korean series title since 1994. The Twins defeated the KT Woods six to two in Game Five of the Korean series at Jamsil Baseball Stadium in southern Seoul. This is the club's third time winning the championship, with other two wins coming in 1990 and 1994. Yes, the long-suffering fans were finally rewarded. They were able to celebrate once again after almost three decades yeah. of waiting. It's quite incredible. And it was uh, Captain Oh Ji-hwan who was named the MVP of the Korean series as well. That's right. The 33-year-old shortstop received 80 out of 93 votes from reporters and received the Korean series MVP trophy and a prize money of 10 million won. That's about 7,500 US dollars. However, that wasn't all right. There was something extra that was given to the MVP. Yes, a luxury watch. You see, the luxury watch was purchased by the late LG Group chairman and the first owner of the LG Twins, Kubon Mu, during an overseas business trip in 1998. At the time, the late chairman pledged that he would give this luxury watch to the Korean series MVP as a motivation. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2018, so was not able to see that wish come true. The luxury item has been kept in a safe ever since. Now, with LG's win, the watch is finally being offered to its new owner, Oh Ji-hwan. Yes, I'm sure he would have been honoured to have received the watch uh, because he was a huge fan of the twins himself for a long time, right? What did he say? So it's like a dream come true, right? During the press conference after the game, Oh said that he would be honoured to receive the watch, but he added that rather than holding on to the luxury item himself, he wants to donate it back to the club so that this milestone can be remembered by everyone. Or he would like to pass on the item to Gu Guangmo, the current chairperson of LG and son of the late Kubo Mu. And he expressed his hope that he wishes the club would get him another present to mark the award instead. That is very generous indeed, considering the watch reportedly cost around 80 million won when it was bought at the time, which is around 60,000 US dollars in today's exchange Mm. rate. So who knows how much it's worth now. But I guess it shows how much of a genuine fan or is uh, to the Twins. Congratulations to him, the whole team and all their fans out there. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, quite a wrap up of the KBO season. That's what we're going to wrap it up for today's career trending as well. Diane, thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Today's Touch Base in Seoul, we have a returning guest. We first met author Frances Cha more than three years ago now, and we talked about her debut novel then, If I Had Your Face, which was named one of the best books of the year by Time magazine, BBC and Esquire. While her debut work was a piercing exploration of modern Korean society centred around four women... The book we're talking about today is of a completely different ilk. This time, Miss Chat is back with a children's book titled The Goblin Twins. It's about two 601-year-old goblins, or tokebis, 
creatures from Korean mythology, mythology who end up finding themselves in New York and go on an unexpected Halloween adventure. We are delighted that uh, Ms. Chat joins us again via video. Ms. Chat, hello, and thank you for your time today. Hello. I'm so excited to be here again. And it, wow, now that you put it that way, it has been quite some time. And <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you back with us on the show. Let's dive right in. First, can you introduce us to uh, your new book? What's it about? Thank you. Um, the Goblin Twins, which just published very recently, um, less than, it's about a few weeks published. It's, it's a picture book for age around three to eight or nine. And it's from um, the Random House Children's Division. It's a different, entire different department from my adult book, mm. as you mentioned. Um, but it's it is about two Tokebi who are considered quite immature, but by the other thousands-year-old Tokebi, <laughs> and they have, they're twins and have very different personalities. One loves to read and stay indoors in the hyunga that they live in, an abandoned house, and the other one likes to go out likes to get in trouble, play tricks on people, and is always, you know, in one scrape or another. <laughs> and um, the, the inciting incident of the story is when their abandoned house gets turned in, or is slated to turn into a mall. So we've entered the current century, development is upon us, and they have to move which is a huge deal for them. And the others um, all move to Seollung, a royal tomb. <laughs> and because Tokibi, um traditionally are known to either live in an abandoned house or they like to live in the graveyard. And this one, Gibi, he's the trickster twin, decides that he wants to move somewhere quite different. He's heard about this strange land where people like to dress up and scare other people. And he feels like it would be just the place for him. Essentially, he's heard about Halloween mm. in the West and trying to convince his more introverted, adventure-averse twin to join him. And um, and then, you know, after some souls are changing. <laughs> So it's a, a children's book. Uh, it's a wonderful children's book uh, for our uh, viewers who are seeing this uh, video uh, online. They can see uh, the cover behind you, the Goblin Twins. We also have a copy of it here as well with us. Uh, people will just see it when the video goes online. It is very cute uh, and beautiful book as well. But as I mentioned, it's quite a jump from your debut novel. How did that happen? Oh, well, I had two children. And they are, they were the age where uh, we were aggressively reading picture books every single, you know, every single night, many, many, many picture books a day. And I discovered that a lot of my favorites that I'd grown up with and held very dear 
they really don't age well. And it's um, a lot of children's fiction. I would reread it because I was excited to immerse in the pleasure that I had as a child. Mm. But a lot of the messaging that was implicit does not hold up. It's a lot of misogynistic ideas, racist ideas that are kind of subtly embedded without even, I'm sure the writer wasn't even aware that that was happening. Mm. So it only just wanted to inspire me to write something um, that contains a bit of Korean culture that I think people outside of Korea would not know as well. But even for people who are well aware of Tokebi and Tokebi folklore, it would be a very new spin and a new story uh, involving these mythical creatures that are so wonderful and should have so many stories to them. <laughs> Indeed. Did you ever think that you would write a, a children's book? Was that something you thought that you would be doing? Well, I, I've, I still reread all my children's books. I'm absolutely obsessed with children's books. I've always have been. So I suppose it, it you could say it has always been part of the plan. I didn't expect for, I actually expected it to be way later on in my career. Mm. Um, but I think having children kind of changed the trajectory. Right. And seeing uh, the children's book that were out there, it was what inspired you to kind of uh, create your own work to try and uh, address some of the issues that you saw. I understand that it was also uh, the story, it was actually inspired by your own personal stories and your history uh, of you and your family and your children as well. Oh, yes. Um, my my brother and I, I have a younger brother. He and I have exact opposite personalities. I'm sure many, many people with siblings would um, kind of identify with this, but somehow even with the same parents, even though we grew up in the same house, I'm always the one who wanted to stay indoors and read books. And he was always out very social, very gregarious, uh, always getting in trouble. And that was, that prompted the duality of the twins for me uh, and my, my own children I have two little girls, but they are also very different. <laughs> and it's constantly kind of sacrificing um, and sh learning to share and sacrificing, but making that compromise was also a big part of the storyline, um, becoming a sibling. Right. So you draw on that experience. I have a sister myself and we are uh, quite different as well. Uh, we do get along uh, very well. But yes, we are quite different in personality. So I can definitely understand that as well. I'm sure many of our listeners will. Uh, the story is about two Tokebis. They are mythical Korean creatures. As you said, uh, many Western readers, especially kids, I'm guessing will not be aware of them. Was there any trepidation about that, about... Uh, introducing this uh, new world of Korean mythological creatures, uh, considering that it might feel uh, aliens to some people? Um, there were definitely hurdles when I was pitching the book. I include an author's note at the end, kind of diving into the mythology and the history that dates back all the way to the Three Kingdoms, as well as how I, my personal story of coming to um, 
this particular subject, which is, which stemmed from overhearing a personal story from my mom and her brother. They were discussing um, a family that they had grown up across the street from that had been said to be cursed um, at, into serving a Tukibi for generations. And it was a very specific story. Uh, and I, as a writer, I just absolutely thrilled upon hearing this story. And I started researching um, kind of these passed down tales. And I found a lot of so many interesting um, mm. histories that I was not aware of, even though I grew up, of course, in Korea, learning or just reading Tokibi stories the way that, you know, all children do. But it was it was a very different, the duality of Tokibi narratives among the adult stories, which tend more towards, you know, very horror, very scary, uh, dark stories. Mm. And then the children's stories are focusing on kind of the foolishness or the Tokibi are off screen, but their magical objects remain behind and the humans who come upon them get right. into all kinds of trouble with them. I guess part of the way to make it was uh, make it approachable was uh, working with the right illustrator. And let's talk a bit more about that collaboration with the illustrator Jamie Kim, because it clearly looks like it was a very successful one. The illustrations are uh they're really lovely. They, they're a little rough around the edges and perhaps the colour palette is a little bit darker, which I think very much suits the Togebi mythology. Can you tell us about how the collaboration worked? Oh my gosh, I could go on for hours about this. I'm <laughs> so obsessed with the picture bookmaking process. Um, and Jamie Kim was at the top of my list when I was talking to my editor. I definitely wanted a Korean uh, illustrator and one who could kind of understand all the nuances of the English jokes, but of course had the entire trove of her own knowledge of the mythology and mm. the setting of both the Korean sections and the New York sections or the American sections. And um, I, my editor, Phoebe Yeh, she shepherded the entire Magic School Bus books from, I don't know if you remember them, from my childhood. And I, she's such an icon in this world. She has such a, a deliberate approach to collaboration between writer and illustrator, puts up this um, wall because writers are very annoying to illustrators. We're always like, oh, can you do this? Can you do this? <laughs> illustrators are probably thinking, you know, why don't you do it yourself? And we're, of course, we can't. But um, just having Jamie bring, it, it's a very different process from just writing an adult book where it's just you, it's all mm. you, versus illustrators really bringing the other 50% of the story and telling so much more through the visual. Um, and there's so, so many hidden Easter eggs in there. And we would go back and forth a lot about um, specific settings. Like I really wanted to do Seollung in particular, mm. or I wanted this Hejang to be leaping into. Um, I, people think it's the the mother, but I think it's the wife because Hejang, you know, they were married to much older women at the time. 
um, and having them in this very Korean palette palatial like like details. Right. So that that was a true joy of collaboration for me. Right. I think people really enjoy just looking at the uh, illustrations uh, as well as reading the story with their children. Very briefly, what's the reaction been like? Uh, have you shown it to other children? Have you shown it to your brother? Oh, yes. <laughs> the reaction has been so, so great. It's it's wonderful. And I've been doing library visits, school visits, bookstore visits. And I would, unless the children are Korean and the, the parents have prepped them in advance, of course, these children have never heard of Tokebi before, so I am explaining to them from scratch, you know, what they are, mm. um, what Korea looks like. This is, you know, Korea through the ages because we have these time travel moments. This is what a Korean palace looks like, and I, I like to liken it to the way, you know, you do, have you. You, you guys know unicorns, you know fairies. <laughs> These are mythical creatures from Korea, and they are well known within Korea the way, the same way that you know those creatures. And just talking about, it's just such sure. a, a gift to be able to introduce um, the, some of the culture. And what did your brother say? Oh, he thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> He and, loves it. He's very supportive. He's forcing all his friends to buy it. <laughs> my apologies to all of his friends who've been <laughs> kind of right. made to purchase it. And finally, I understand that there are already plans for a sequel in place. Yes, the second one is coming out fall 2024. And we're going back and forth right now about how to make each scene as funny as possible. So how to, whether we keep it um, as a visual or right. actually write it out. I love I love the, the back and forth of jokes. Fantastic. So there's more to come from the Goblin Twins. Well, congratulations on the book. It's a wonderful work. We'll have to wrap it up there. We've been speaking to author Francis Cha. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Austin Dean, first baseman for the LG Twins, and you are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's time for our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features, reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, so what do you have for us first today? Well, some of my favourite pieces of music are often creations that mix both old and new together, so traditional and modern music. Maybe one of the best examples of this is the Korean government's Feel the Rhythm of Korea series. They had rappers and famous pop singers perform their own version of traditional songs. Right, that was the KTO, the Korea Tourism yes. Organization's uh, videos uh, that they made on uh, a, f a few years ago, I believe. They are now, so yeah? good, yes. So yes, they have like indeed. Millions of views. <laughs> well, Hwan dong article in the culture section of the Korea Herald asks the question, when traditional Korean instruments such as gayagum, hegum, and degum meet electronic music, 
what kind of harmony will emerge? <laughs> it seems like people will be able to get an answer to that question soon enough, as a special concert will take place at Seoul Sejong Grand Theatre next month. Okay, so this concert is looking to fuse traditional instruments with a genre that's popular today then? Exactly. So the Seoul Metropolitan Traditional Orchestra will perform on December 7th with the electronic music band Modular Soul. The orchestra will use traditional instruments, while the trio will use electronic musical instruments that synthesize sounds. The idea is to push the boundaries of the country's traditional music by intertwining it with various genres. It sounds pretty interesting, and if you look at the picture that's included in the article, it looks like something from a science fiction movie. <laughs> the article also goes into detail about the pieces that will be performed at the Sejong Grand Theatre. Okay, and can you walk us through a couple of the pieces then? Sure. The article explains that one of the songs is Wind of Sound, which is a composition made for drums and a Korean traditional orchestra. Drummer and percussionist Han Ung Won will work his magic on the drums, while singer Sun Woo Jung Ah will perform jazz vocal improvisation. Then there's Suje Chun Recompose. This, so this is a blend of Korean court music with uh, Western instruments and electronic music. You can read more about the other pieces in Tomorrow's Career Herald. Yes, so this certainly sounds like an interesting uh, concert. Once again, it will be taking place uh, on December 7th yes. with the Seoul Metropolitan Traditional Orchestra. Yes. OK, let's move on to our next title. What do you have for us? Well, I have some good news for foreigners who are planning to visit South Korea soon. Jung Dae-yeon's article in the national section of the Korea Times explains that a real-time translation service will be introduced in tourist information centres in Seoul from Monday. Wow, a real-time yes. translation service. It sounds like that could be something helpful for tourists right. indeed. How many languages will be included and how does it work exactly? So it will be available in 11 languages. So that's Chinese, Japanese, Thai, Vietnamese, Malaysian, Indonesian, Arabic, Russian, Spanish, French and English. So apparently the service uses an AI translation engine and digital technology that converts voice into text. So when a tourist asks a question, Korean text will show on a transparent monitor, which staff can then read. Mm. It works the other way around as well. So the staff can speak in Korean and then a translation will show on the screen for the tourist to read. This is especially useful for tourists who don't know languages like English, for example. Right. This does indeed sound very useful. Uh, it's interesting that the government are starting to use AI in this way. Yes. So where can it be found from Monday? So it will be introduced at the Gwangamun Tourist Information Center and Seoul Tourism Plaza. I should say that this is a pilot project, so only two centers will have it. It will be used at these two sites until December 31st. And if everything goes well, the service will then be expanded further. Right. I'm sure there will be questions about accuracy and reliability right. uh, of this service, but we've got to start somewhere, exactly. I guess. And this is the future, it seems, using uh, AI translation to help in this sort of way. Yes. Right. So it'll be very interesting to see how this uh, trial goes. Let's finish up there. Thank you for bringing us those stories. Uh, Richard, as always, thank you. And we'll see you next time. See you. And that's where we wrap up our show for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back the same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-wo. And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
KBS World Radio.